Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Paul. So glad that you're here today. And I have the privilege of speaking to you on Family Sunday. So I don't know if you realize, but on the fifth service of each month, our elementary school uh, kids from CG Kids over here are in the service. And uh, so we're excited to have them today. And I see quite a few, so that's, that's, that's cool. Um, but I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I thought about it a lot when I was a kid. But what if I was the guy that found the golden lamp and rubbed on it and the genie popped out and I got three wishes? What kind of things would I wish for? Has anybody else ever thought about that or am I the weird one? Okay, all right. I don't mind being the weird one. It happens all the time. But, uh, <laughs> so if you got three wishes, what would it be? I remember as a kid I thought, well, that I could strike anyone out that I ever pitched to. That'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it, if you had a 100% strikeout rate? Or if I could shoot more than 90% from the field in a basketball game. I'm not sure why it was always sports. <laughs> or if I could be the fastest person in the 100 meters. It seemed like if you could do any of those things, it would like turn into lots of other stuff. Of course, as I grew older, I kind of matured a little bit. And I started thinking more in, about other kinds of wishes. But I don't know if you have seen the Aladdin movie. It's kind of new again because they remade it recently. And uh, we even had the opportunity to show it for a Pinion Hills PTO event with, with our church equipment a couple of weeks ago, so that's pretty exciting. But um, there's that moment where the genie's describing all the incredible wishes that people have wished for in the past, all the things Aladdin could ask for, and it's you know all this big, grandiose stuff. And the genie tells him to be really careful how he phrases it because, you know, you could ask for something and it ends up being something else because of just how you word it. But there's this really pivotal moment that I noticed the last time I saw the show. And that is when Aladdin turns to the genie and says, if you had one wish, what would it be? And the genie's kind of stumped for a second. And then really quick, he's like, well, I'd wish to be free. You know, because he's been living in the lamp for thousands of years. Of course, it's a fictional story, but he's, he's very quick to realize what his one wish would be. And I don't know if you've ever had someone ask you about your wishes or your hopes or your dreams. Maybe you'd be able to wrap all that up into one single thing. Like I said, I've, mine's changed over the years. I'm all over the place with some of my wishes. But maybe you have a driving force behind your decisions, behind your actions, something that's motivated you behind the scenes that's kind of steered the course of your life. I'm not sure I have that kind of clarity. But in our passage today, we're going to see that as Paul addressed the Ephesians, as he wraps up the section of his letter that talks about the incredible things we know, that through Christ we have access to every spiritual blessing, that we have been chosen and received an inheritance as a fully adopted member of his family, that we have been rescued from death by the grace of God shown through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, that we have the hope of the church, that God opened access to salvation for everyone, Gentiles and Jews together, and made us part of the mystery of the gospel that Paul himself was entrusted with. As he wraps up these amazing truths and prepares to transition, next week we're going to go into the do section of the book. We've got the no section. Next week's do. When he prepares to transition to that more practical what should we do section of the letter, he shares a prayer for the believers in Ephesus. And it's also a prayer for us, a prayer for the church. And it reveals his one wish. 
It's as if someone turned to him and said, Paul, if you could have one thing, if you could have one wish, what would it be? And this is what we're going to dive into today. Now, there's, there's also another movie that this makes me think about, uh, and that's City Slickers. And this is a, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, and this is quite an older movie, but there's this character in City Slickers played by a, an actor who's uh, passed on since they made the movie, Jack Palance. I don't know if you remember this guy, but he was like the ultimate like Marlboro man, if you remember those old advertisements. Leather skin, looked really rough, looked like he could conquer anything, and when he talked, you knew it was true, right? And so there's this moment in the movie that happens multiple times, and that is he asks Billy Crystal, who's kind of a goofy city guy trying to do a cattle drive, and Jack Palance is helping him through that. He's a real cowboy. And he, he asks Billy Crystal, what's the secret to life? And he's like, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. He's like, and he says it in a way that's like super intimidating. What's the secret to life? And then he says, it's this one thing. And he never goes further than that. It's this one thing. And so the whole movie's like Billy Crystal trying to figure out what the secret to life is according to this cattle drive leader that's taking them on this, uh, on this journey. But today, it's kind of the same thing. It's as if the Ephesians have asked Paul that question. And the first three chapters of this letter are his long-winded way of saying, it's this one thing. And today we get to see how he summarizes that answer. Because based on the incredible riches of God's spiritual blessings, Paul offers a prayer to summarize this section, to show his one wish. It's a prayer for the church. It's a prayer for us. Let's pray together as we get started. God, I just thank you for today. I thank you for this letter that Paul has shared with the Ephesians, with those close to them as it got circulated, and then ultimately finding its way to us through your divine inspiration. We thank you for what it tells us about you, what it tells us about us in relation to you, and what it tells us about how we should live because of that relationship. And so, God, we're just privileged to have your word, your revelation of yourself to us. And I pray that we would see in this prayer today something about you that's fresh, something that causes us to maybe think differently, act differently, um, but to, to leave this place different because we've encountered you this morning. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we find this prayer at the end of chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 14 through 21. And like I said, it's setting up a transition to the second half of the book where he talks about what we should do because of what we know. And so we're going to read the whole prayer, and then we're going to dig into kind of individual pieces of it as we go along this morning. So Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. 
So right off the bat, we get a picture of Paul's commitment to these believers, Paul's commitment to this thought. In Ephesians 3.14, he starts off saying, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, I wonder if you've ever had someone tell you that they were praying for you. Have you ever had someone tell you they were praying for you that you knew was, they were serious? Right? In the church, it can almost be a greeting. I'll pray for you. But there's, there's certain people you know when they say that, they really mean it. They're going to God on, on your behalf regularly. They're beseeching him on your behalf. Someone you know is serious. Someone with a closeness to God that you respect or maybe even admire. Someone that has been an influential part of your spiritual journey. Think about how big of an encouragement that is when someone tells you that. And here we have Paul, who's kind of well-known in the area at this point, right? He's starting these churches. He's sharing the gospel of Christ. He started out as a Christian terrorizer, uh, as a, as a high-ranking uh, religious person in the Jewish community. He suffers greatly in his uh, missionary journey to the Gentiles to help the world know how to follow Christ. Writes half the New Testament. Of course, they didn't know that at that point. But Paul, an incredible follower of Jesus, influential to the, the whole region, says, I bow on my knees for you. I bow on my knees to the Father for you. You can't get the full weight of this without considering that little phrase, for this reason. And Derek talked about it last week because Paul was about to launch into this, and then he chased a rabbit for a few verses. So he says, for this reason, chase a rabbit, and now he's coming back to it. He says, for this reason. And this is the phrase that brings forward everything that Paul has said up to this point that we've looked at all the past few weeks in this letter, because he's just spent two and a half chapters expounding on what the spiritual blessings are that we've received from God. I said a few of them at the beginning, but here they are again. God has chosen us, making us acceptable despite our unworthiness by redeeming us from our sins and washing us completely clean through the blood of Jesus. Through that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in and through us, is open to all who place their faith and trust in him. That through faith in Jesus, we've obtained an eternal inheritance that is sure and is sealed by the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And that we've been given full citizenship in his kingdom. And we are now as the church built together in Christ to share him with the world. So there you go. A few things that Paul has mentioned up to this point, and he says, for this reason, for all of those things, it brings me to my knees on behalf of the believers in Ephesus, on behalf of the church, on behalf of us. And this posture being mentioned, I think, is significant because there's lots of times when Paul says he's, he's thinking of them, he's praying for them often, it's, it's in a lot of his greetings and his salutations of his letters, but in this moment, in the middle of the letter, he mentions that he's on his knees. He's beseeching God with all that he has for this one thing. Now, a few years ago, I heard a news story about a guy that was driving around town, kind of like he would any other day, and he came up to a, an intersection where someone that was down on their luck was homeless. They were holding a sign and talking about needing money to get through uh, the next few days. Well, what he didn't know was this homeless person had kind of staked out that spot for about the last 20 years. He hadn't been at that intersection very often, so he came up, he saw this person, compassion overcame him, he was feeling generous, he was reaching into his wallet for a couple of small bills, and as he got the attention 
of the person, they started walking to his car, he realized that it was his son that he'd been looking for for 20 years. What do you think he did? Do you think he just gave him a couple of small bills? No. He celebrated. It's like the prodigal son in Scripture. He celebrated. He parked his car. He said, I've been looking for you. I'm so glad to have found you. Come join the family. Everything that I have is yours. It's already yours because you're my son. It is your inheritance. Thank goodness that I found you today at this intersection that I don't normally go to. Well, it's similar to what Paul's saying here. He wants us to realize at the start of Ephesians that we need to stop asking for small bills just to survive, that God has already given us everything, an inheritance. We're full, uh, fully adopted into his family. The righteousness of Christ is, is ours. Uh, Paul wanted them to realize every spiritual blessing that, that is ours through Jesus, and he's praying that what he's laid out in his letter up to this point would truly sink in, and he wants it so bad that he, he bows, he's flat, he's beseeching God that this would, come, would be true in the lives of the believers in Ephesus. And he, because he knows once they know it, they would live transformed lives because of it. Once they've experienced God in this way, they would be different from that point forward. Uh, one more quick thing I want to point out is the start of this prayer. Paul makes it clear who he's praying to. He says, I bow on my knees before the Father. And then in verse 15, he continues, from whom every single family in heaven and on earth is named. So there's a play on words here that we kind of lose a little bit of meaning uh, in our English translations, and it happens uh, two or three times in this passage today. But Paul is literally saying that God is the father of the fathers, that he's the ultimate father. He's over all. We are all under him. By speaking this way, Paul's reemphasizing we are part of a vast family. We've been adopted into his family. We are unified as one. And it's especially significant because, as Derek's pointed out several times over these weeks, Paul is addressing Gentiles. And he's saying, you're, you're part of it. God is, the, God is your father. He's not just the father of the Jews. He's your father. He's the father of fathers. He's the father of nations. And so that inclusion is huge. And it's another highlight of God's grace being extended to the entire world, unifying us all under his name and his authority. So... With all that as a preamble, let's see what he actually prays, okay? So there's four things that he asks for, and of course they build on each other, ultimately getting us to this, this summary statement. First thing he asks for, that we would be strengthened in our inner being. Now Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And, but I really like how the NIV translates that one verse, because it says, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. Everything you do flows from it. And Paul is praying right off the bat that we would be strengthened in our inner being. This idea of the heart, the inner being, is something you see throughout Scripture. And one of the great treasures of following Jesus is that he not only walks with us, but he lives in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so this prayer for strength in our inner being is not with the idea that we try harder and do better. Look at verse, three, uh, verse 16 of chapter 3. It says that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So again, Paul's not praying that you would try harder or do better. He's calling on the power of God to strengthen us in our inner being 
through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's because of all the spiritual blessings that Paul has explained up to this point that he offers this prayer. So it's another way for him to say, stop relying on yourself. Only God can change you. Only God can mend your brokenness. Only God can overcome the darkness within us. But we must trust in his power. We must yield to his presence. And we've got to understand the importance of allowing him to strengthen us in our inner being because that's where the true battlefield resides, doesn't it? In our heart. The true battlefield for our sanctification of that becoming who God has called us to be, of being more and more like Jesus as we grow and as we learn and as we experience things in this life, of being more and more of who God's called us to be. And so he prays that we would be strengthened in our inner being. And the second thing he prays flows right out of that, and that is that we experience the indwelling of Christ. Experience the indwelling of Christ. So in the beginning of verse 17, he goes on and says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And as I just said, Christ already dwells in, your, in the heart of every believer by virtue of the Holy Spirit, right? So what is Paul talking about here? Why is he making a distinction? It seems like he's saying the same thing twice. Um, the word that Paul uses here has a, a deeper meaning. The word for dwell, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, has a deeper meaning. It describes a complete and permanent residence. Complete and permanent in control of every area, permanently at home in every area of our life. Now, my son Josh is a freshman at UNR, and so he had his first dorm hallway, here's what the rules are, kind of meeting with the RA, the resident assistant, who's the older, more experienced person that gets to tell you what the rules are, right? Uh, so it made me remember my first meeting with my RA a few years ago. Uh, and one of the things that stuck out to me, and this may be different now, but this RA was real big on saying, I'll knock once, let you know that I'm there for a room check, and then I'm coming in. Because I've learned over the years that if I knock and someone tells me, oh, can you go on down the hall and come back? We'll be ready for you when you, you know, circle back. He knows that means I need to check that room, right? So as soon as I knock on the door, I'm coming in, I got a master key, I'm coming in to, to check things out. So that means at any moment, you need to be ready and be sure that you're not breaking any rules, don't have any contraband, whatever the things are that are the rules of your dorm hallway. Well, we kind of do that in our life, don't we? Jesus comes along and he, he points out something to us. And he says, what about this area? And we're like, uh, Jesus, can you just kind of go on down and circle back? I'm still working on that one. And he, he comes back and we've got these places locked away in our life. We've got these places hidden that we don't want to expose. We've got this darkness in us that we feel like we've got to clean up before we can uh, allow God in there. And that's exactly the opposite. When we put our faith in Christ, he makes our heart his home. And in the sense of this verse, he doesn't have complete possession of every area because we still have that struggle of wills. We continue to be convicted of areas that we have not surrendered control to him. We hold back those things in our inner being. So Paul here prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, truly dwell there completely, completely in control, that Jesus would have access to every room in the house of our heart so that he can cleanse everything and truly make himself at home. And we pick up that verse again. We see with that indwelling what that leads to in our lives, the second half of verse 17 and going forward that you, being rooted and grounded in love, 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. So we praise that we'd be strengthened in our inner being, that we would experience the indwelling of Christ. And the third thing is that we would comprehend the love of Christ, that we would comprehend the love of Christ. And again, it flows directly from that previous thought. When Jesus has access to every room in your heart, you live your lives rooted and grounded in love. And you've heard this before, but it's so important to be reminded it all starts with Jesus. It all starts with that relationship. It all starts with abiding in Him, surrendering to Him. And everything Paul has talked about up to this point in, in, in this prayer is based on the adoption and spiritual blessings that can be ours through faith in Christ alone. So that's the foundation. With that as your foundation, when you've sunk your roots deep into who Jesus is and what He's done, it allows you to draw nourishment and sustenance from Him the true source of life. And it leads to this next step, that we begin to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. Now, there's a little phrase that I left out, and I think it's important. It says, we comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So why do you think that phrase is important? A little phrase, with all the saints. It's another example of, how, of Paul pointing out that this love is something we experience together. It's something we experience in community with other believers. It's something we experience as we share life together. We're not meant to try and comprehend the love of Jesus apart from our fellow believers. There's something formative in our spiritual life about living in community with one another that leads us to know and experience God. Because this divine love is not knowledge gained by private study. It's love learned in the fellowship and the messiness of the church. Both Jesus' love for us and what it means to love others. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So together, we share, we experience the knowledge of the love of God that surpasses knowledge. So how can you comprehend something that's incomprehensible? How does that work? How can you comprehend something that surpasses knowledge? What is Paul trying to say? Well, in describing love, Paul draws on these empirical measurements of breadth and length and height and depth. He's giving us a picture of the eternal, unmeasurable nature of this love. You can't make sense of it. You can't box it, but you can experience it. You can know it. And it's another play on words. You can know, which in this sense used here is like our word experience, that which you can't describe or understand, right? Just think about love itself. Can you define love? Really? Songs have been written for centuries that have tried. Art has been done for centuries to try to convey the feeling. Poems, books, you name it, have tried to diagnose it, but you know it when? When you experience it. And that's a similar idea here, to experience the incomprehensible love of Christ with all the saints. So the love of Jesus we're called upon to know and share with one another is a love that surpasses human knowledge. It's not just a concept that we should contemplate. It's real. You can experience it, and you can be changed by it. And the more you experience it, the more you experience God, it's as if you're 
eyes are opened, the gates of your heart are swung wide, because when you experience it, you're experiencing God just as you were designed to at creation, because this is, this is really cool. God doesn't just have love. God is love. So when you experience love like Paul's describing, you're experiencing God. You're experiencing His very being. And He wants us to know Him. He wants us to experience Him. And now we come to this fourth thing that Paul asks, that we would be strengthened in our inner being, that we would experience the indwelling of Christ, and we would understand the, we would experience the love of Christ. And finally, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, everything leads to this. This is Paul's one wish. This is his answer to the question, that we would be strengthened in our inner being so that Christ can be at home in our heart, allowing us to experiencing his love, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I think we can misunderstand that picture. It's not that we're filled full with God. We are filled with all the fullness of God. We're not simply filled as if it's something that makes us feel satisfied or content, like after a good meal, like I had Friday night at Garibaldi's. I was very satisfied and content. Um, It's not that feeling. It's that we're so filled up with Jesus, there's no room for anything else. There's no other object or person that can catch our attention. To truly know God's love and to be filled with his fullness is to be possessed by it, to be totally controlled by it. It's not something we control and give out when we feel like it. We're filled for the sake of that fullness overflowing from us for the sake of the world around us. We're filled so that the grace and reconciliation that he's accomplished through Christ in us can be known in the world around us. By knowing his love that is beyond knowing, we are filled for the goal of God's fullness in and for the world. And here, Paul can't really help himself. Uh, He has to give this final message because he has so much confidence that God is going to answer this prayer. He wants to let the church know kind of, you know, what to expect to happen. In verses 20 and 21, he says, Now to him, speaking of God, of course, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul has confidence in God's power. Again, reminding us that only God can accomplish these things in and through us. This play on words here, once again, is significant. He says, um, the wording here, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We don't talk like that, but the endings they use on these words uh, bring out that meaning in the original language. Exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And the goal is what? It's God's glory in the church, that is, not the building, his followers around the world, that that people see what God's doing in and through us, and they see God. They don't see us, they don't see talent, they don't see people that have their life together. They see God moving. They see things that only God can do. They see relationships that only God can restore. They see darkness that only God can turn to light. They see God at work in his church. Remember, Paul started his prayer with, for this reason, because of all the spiritual blessings that God has poured out on his children through faith in Christ, Paul's one wish for the church is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Why? So he gets the glory. 
for the incredible impact he makes on the world through his people so that God gets the glory. You know, the most loving thing God can do is draw attention to himself. When we do it, it's a selfish thing. When God does it, it's the most selfless thing possible because it's only him that can restore us. It's only him that can redeem us. It's only him that can heal us. And so this prayer is especially convicting because I think about how I pray for our church. I think about how we pray for one another. And I wonder if I have that same urgency that Paul had. Do we have that same urgency, not just for people in this room, but for other believers around the world? We've seen what, what Hannah shared. There she is over there. We've seen what Hannah shared in, in her experience. We heard from Amy last week in her experience of seeing people come to Christ overseas and how they knew God was present, how they knew God was, was active. Have we, have we experienced that? Have we seen that? Have we allowed God to move in and through us in that moment? Because when we read that Paul's one wish is for them to be filled with all the fullness of God, I think we have to think about how we pray for one another. Because it's easy for me to get mired in the details. You know, I'm going to pray for success for the day. I'm going to pray that people would uh, feel welcome, um, that God would move, that he would bless. All good prayers. They're not bad prayers. But when, when Paul boils it down to one thing, he says, I pray, I, I, because of everything you know about Jesus and what he's done, I pray that you would be filled with the fullness of God, all the fullness of God. I wonder what would happen if we shared Paul's burden. I wonder what would happen if we prayed for one another in this way. I wonder what would happen if we prayed for other churches with this prayer, for other believers in our community and around the world. I wonder what would happen if we prayed for those that are our neighbors, that uh, God's placed us near, those in our job that God's placed us near? What would happen if we had a burden for them to experience all these things that he's described in the first three chapters of Ephesians, so much so that we were on our knees begging God that they would experience all of his fullness? Well, you know what would happen. We see it in verses 20 and 21. He's going to do abundantly more than we can even ask or think. So would you commit to pray that today? Would you pray for one another, for common ground, for other churches in our community, for missionaries around the world? Because I don't know about you, I want to see what God has in mind when he shows up and does exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think. I want to see that. And so I'm committing to, to pray that prayer and not get mired in the details of ministry success or, or getting into a building, all important things, but that we would... All of that would be about his glory being shown in the church because we're so full of who he is and what he's done. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the conviction of Paul's burden, the conviction of his prayer, the conviction that he has to see people fully surrendered to you and experiencing all of who you are and what you've done. God, I pray that in this moment, maybe there's people that uh, haven't surrendered their lives to Jesus for the first time. I pray, God, that they would, they would seek out the prayer people in the back of the room today, that they would say, today's the day that I need to give my life to Jesus. God, there's people in here today that I know have a, locked rooms in their heart. They have things they want to hide. They have things they want to try to take care of in their own power. God, I pray today that they would 
open those doors wide and allow you to enter in, allow you to cleanse in the way that only you can. God, that they would, again, seek out someone to pray for them or to to put a request in our prayer wall so that we can be praying that they would be filled with all the fullness of you. And God, I pray that as we see you do incredible things in our church, as we see you move and provide places for us to meet, I pray, God, that those would never be ends uh, for themselves, but they would be a means to an end. They would be a means to your glory spreading in this area, in this community, in this state around the world, because, God, we would have a burden for seeing people everywhere because you're the father of fathers, you're the father of nations, that we would see people everywhere turning to you, surrendering their life to you, experiencing who you are. And God, I know there's people in this room today that would say, I don't know what it's like to have all the fullness of God. I pray especially for them this morning, God, that you would reach into their heart, that you would reach into their life, that you would show them a little piece of who you are, and that they would be ready to say yes to you today. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we think about this, these first three chapters and all that God has done through his son Jesus, it's a perfect opportunity for us this morning because we're taking communion. And the communion is about remembering what makes our relationship with God possible, that it's the broken body of Jesus, it's the cleansing blood of Jesus that makes our forgiveness possible. It makes our right relationship with God possible. His sacrifice. He died a death that we deserve so that he could offer us life that we didn't earn. And so today as you prepare, as you respond to God, I I tell people often, this to me is the most sacred time in the service because uh, you've, you've warmed up, you've gotten used to the idea of being around God's people and in God's presence today. You've heard from God's word. He's, he's said things to you. I didn't talk to you today. God talks to you through his word. And so he's said things to you today. And now's your opportunity to think about what is God trying to say? What is God asking? And to reflect on maybe what his reason for bringing you today is. And so when you're ready, when you're ready to acknowledge the incredible gift of who Jesus is and what he's done, then you go ahead and line up and come and take communion. As I prayed, there'll be people in the back ready to to speak to you, to pray with you, whatever burden you may have. If you want to accept Christ for the first time today, if you want to do that in a more private way, please write a prayer request and put it over here. But we want to see God show up and, and his people be filled with all of his fullness. So let's celebrate what makes that possible this morning as we take communion together and respond to him.